0: Welcome to Leonard LoPate at Large. I'm Leonard LoPate. The global epidemic of diabetes and pre-diabetes afflicts over one billion people. In fact, diabetes is the seventh leading cause of death globally. Doctors Martin Abrahamson and Rajiv Chopra have written a patient-focused guide that includes a concise history of the complex disease, the underlying types and causes, obesity, weight loss, pregnancy, mental health, type two diabetes prevention and remission and the latest treatments the authors are renowned master clinicians and professors at harvard medical school with decades of extensive clinical experience their book conquer your diabetes prevention control remission is published by abrahamson chopra publishing and brings professors abrahamson and chopra to our show now welcome Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: No, Thank you very much. Delighted
2: to be on your show.
0: Now, I will initially uh, address each of you by name, but at a, because there are two, but at a certain point, it will become a free-for-all, okay? Sure. Okay, let's begin with you, Dr. Abramson. You write that in 2000, there were an estimated 150 million adults with diabetes in the world, and by 2019 there was an estimated 465 million. That's an incredible jump. It is indeed.
1: It's a huge jump. Uh, And we're seeing this worldwide prevalence of diabetes. Most of it is what we call type 2 diabetes, Mm. uh, increasing in every country in the world. In more staggering um, percentage increases are seen in um, parts of the developing world uh, and in countries like India and China. Uh, and I'm afraid to say this staggering increase uh, correlates with the rise in obesity as well uh, that we are witnessing as a uh, globally, what we, uh, Sanjeev and I, call a global epidemic.
0: So is that what uh, being at risk means, that you're, like, you're obese? Or aren't there other reasons that people might come down with diabetes?
1: Sure. There, there are um, certain genetic risk factors um, for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. They are different diseases in many ways caused by different mechanisms. Um, but at the same time for type 2 diabetes, while there may be a genetic predisposition, what has really fueled this rise has been changes in the way we live our lives. Uh, more sedentary, um, uh, less exercise, uh, gaining weight. And that is really the key to the increased prevalence of this disease,
0: and it's estimated that uh, it's predicted that by 2030, the number is going to grow to almost 580 million, and in 2045 to 700 million. We, we better we better start changing the way we live our lives. Um, you said it. You said it. I hope the listeners take it to heart. Dr. Chopra, doesn't type one diabetes affect a much smaller number of people than type two?
2: That is correct. Type one diabetes is what we call an autoimmune condition. There are many autoimmune disorders. The word autoimmune means that the body recognizes its own organs or parts of the body as being foreign Mm. and mounts an immune response. So there are many conditions including lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and celiac disease. Type one diabetes, is one of those where the body's immune system attacks the beta cells in the pancreas, which make insulin and there is zero insulin production. Fortunately, or just to be accurate about it, 5%, at most 10% of people have type one diabetes. The majority have type two diabetes. And as Martin mentioned, It's related to uh, lifestyle changes. There is a genetic component. The most common genetic disorder known to man is called idiopathic genetic hemochromatosis in which the GI tract avidly absorbs iron from the food. And when we get excess iron in the liver, in the pancreas, in the heart, and then it can lead to cirrhosis, it can lead to diabetes, it can lead to cardiac disease.
0: Wasn't it often referred to as juvenile diabetes in the past?
2: It was, but that term has uh, is no longer in favor, mm-hmm. and we refer to it as type 1
0: and type 2. And is it managed with insulin injections?
2: Yeah, patients with type 1 diabetes need lifelong insulin. There is hope. We have a brilliant colleague at Harvard Medical School, Doug Melton who's a biologist, professor of medicine, heads the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. He goes to sleep thinking about a cure for type 1 diabetes. He dreams about it, he wakes up about it. (laughs) He has two children, one of them at nine months had type 1 diabetes. Wow! And he has spawned a company and recently about four or five months ago, the first patient with type 1 diabetes appears to have been cured by stem cells that were coerced to make insulin. A big story, New York Times, all over the place.
0: Well, your brother, Deepak Chopra, who uh, I think his name will be recognized by many people, he's contributed to the book. Uh, isn't he uh, an advocate for alternative medicine? Does alternative medicine come into this story at all?
2: Yeah, uh, Deepak, by the way, is also an endocrinologist and he's written the foreword for our book, a very uh, kind and very brilliant foreword. And um, he's been an advocate for integrative medicine for many, many years. He and I have many discussions and I tell him integrative medicine is good. It's usually good in preventing disease or in complementing the treatments we use. But if somebody has chronic hepatitis C infection or somebody has type one diabetes, complementary and alternative medicine will have a minor role. And we actually have a chapter in in our book about uh, the role of complementary and alternative medicine.
0: Dr. Abramson, uh, uh, well, uh, wasn't type two diabetes once referred to as non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus or adult onset? Diabetes, right. so, so, yeah. but, so but but so. it but affects most, It begins with insulin resistance, doesn't it? So let me let me just say a few words about the the
1: nomenclatures for diabetes. You're right. Uh, type one used to be called juvenile onset. Hmm. That was because people thought type one diabetes affected children, adolescents, uh, maybe young adults. Because it was inherited. We now, know, we now know that type one diabetes can actually occur at any age. I recently saw a person aged 70 years who uh, had new onset type 1 diabetes. And we can diagnose the type 1 diabetes by doing certain blood tests that pick up these antibodies that Sanjay was referring to that are present in the blood. Uh, we, We also used to think that type 2 diabetes only occurred in adults, people after the age of 40, 45. Unfortunately, with the rise in obesity and the sedentary lifestyle we're now seeing type 2 diabetes occurring in children and adolescents and so the 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 wording maturity onset or adult onset diabetes does not apply then with regard to treatment we now know also that people with type 2 diabetes may ultimately also require insulin to manage their diabetes and to control their glucose And that's the nature of the defect in type 2 diabetes there are really two major defects there's some other defects that occur but you mentioned the word insulin resistance that's because that that term describes the fact that insulin produced by the pancreas the beta cells of the pancreas is just not as effective as it normally should be in pushing the glucose from the blood into the cells where it's used for energy But in addition to that people with type 2 diabetes have a beta cell that's not working quite well enough and therefore their production of insulin is also uh, decreased so you have this combination of less insulin and insulin resistance and then that that leads to elevated glucose levels in the blood which obviously defines Diabetes.
0: But don't most people with pre diabetes only need to lose 7% of their body weight to reduce their risk of developing type 2 diabetes by quite a bit? Uh, where do the beta cells come into all of that?
1: Well, what happens is um, you're right, a small amount of weight loss, and we, we talk about this in our book as well. Small amounts of weight loss can go a long way, not only to reducing the risk for di- developing diabetes but actually to improving glucose control if you have diabetes and also prevent uh, reducing other comorbidities associated with
0: um, being overweight. The third form of diabetes, which we haven't even uh, mentioned, gestational diabetes.
2: So women during pregnancy can have increased blood sugar levels, and it's referred to as gestational diabetes. And uh, many of them are at risk for developing full-blown diabetes with the passage of time. Again, women during pregnancy, a couple of things happen. Often they gain a lot of weight and some of them are unable to lose the excess weight they've gained. There's also a change in the gut microbiome. We have a hundred trillion bacteria in our GI tract. It's called, it's one of the hottest topics in medicine, microbiome. Hmm. It's been called a newly discovered organ, the inner bacterial rainforest. forest the second human genome. And during pregnancy, especially in the third trimester, the gut microbiome changes. You can take a normal mouse and give them the stool of a third trimester patient, mix it with the food, and the mouse will gain tremendous amount of weight
0: Hmm.
2: and develop insulin resistance. You do it in the first trimester, no change. So gestational diabetes is a challenge. There are diseases in which we can develop diabetes. Recently, we've seen a very interesting phenomenon with COVID, COVID COVID-19. People develop diabetes. The good news is that when they recover, the diabetes seems to go into remission.
0: Do we have any idea of why?
2: Another virus called chronic hepatitis C virus infection. I'm a liver specialist. I've seen many, many patients with chronic hepatitis C who had type two diabetes. And when we cured their chronic hepatitis C, their type two diabetes disappeared.
0: Uh, let me
1: chime in for a second. I may have yeah, missed something. welcome some back, Dr.
0: Abrahamson. <laughs> yeah,
1: unfortunately, something happened to the to the Wi-Fi in the office here. Um, uh, the 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 issue of COVID and diabetes is fascinating because we have seen with COVID more children developing diabetes, and that may not necessarily all go away. Now, one of the things that one of the things that is postulated is that this virus attaches to certain, what we call receptors on some cells uh, and affects those cells. And one of those receptors is found on the beta cell of the pancreas, which is the cell that makes insulin. So it's it's an open question at the moment as to what is the exact mechanism. Sanjeev is right. Some people develop high, high glucose levels, which get better as they recover from COVID. But there is, there is this slight association of COVID and an increased prevalence of diabetes seen, especially amongst children. So we need we need to learn a lot more, and scientists are actively working to try and solve that problem.
0: Where does the word insulin come from? Uh, we, uh, uh, we should also get into where the word diabetes comes from. It's an ancient word, isn't it?
1: It is an ancient word. Um, diabetes mellitus is basically relates to... Um, Sugar and urine, um, and the way diabetes was was diagnosed years and years and years ago is people noticed that uh, that the urine contained a lot of sugar was tasted sweet if you tasted it, and it attracted flies. In, and in that 1550 was how BC, diabetes years ago.
0: Well, in the sixth century BC in India, uh, Sush, Sushruta wrote about a disease he termed madhumeha, which, uh, as you say, referred to the sweetness of urine. um, And uh, physicians of that time diagnosed it by seeing if an individual's urine attracted ants.
2: Yes. Sushrita was an amazing surgeon, physician, way ahead of his time. He even cataloged 101 uh, surgical instruments, Hmm. including instruments used to treat cataract. And this is centuries ago. Um, Mellitus, I believe, also means honey. So again, sweet. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Banting and Best, when they discovered insulin, they had these dogs given to them by Professor of Pathology MacLeod in Toronto. Banting, Frederick Banting, a surgeon, went to him and said, can I have use of your lab six dogs and a medical student? He said, I'm going on vacation to Europe. You can have six dogs. You can have my lab and you can have two medical students. So two medical students showed up and uh, Banting flipped a coin and Charles Best won. The other student, by many reports, went to Europe for a vacation. And then they would take these dogs. No one knew what the pancreas really did. They thought it was important in digestion because there was the pancreatic duct emptying into the proximal small intestine. But when they removed the pancreas, these dogs became very thirsty. They were passing a lot of urine and as Martin mentioned, it attracted flies. And uh, so that's how they then repeated the experiment, gave them pancreatic extracts and now they no longer had diabetes. I believe they initially called it isletin because it from the islet cells of the pancreas and then the term insulin got into favor.
0: My guests are Doctors Rajiv Chopra and Martin Abramson, and uh, we're talking about their book, Conquer Your Diabetes Prevention Control Remission, which is published by Abramson Chopra Publishing. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The show is Leonard Lopate at Large. Okay, Dr. Abramson, you were saying?
1: Yeah, so to add to the, you asked where does incident come from? Um there was even before insulin was discovered itself, the hormone, uh, there were people who felt that the only thing missing in people with diabetes was this chemical substance from the pancreas, and they used the word insula from Latin, which means island. Mm-hmm. and island relates to these islets, these little islands of cells that are that are present in the pancreas that make insulin. So these are little cells in the pancreas. And that's how you were you, you from the they now called part of the islets of Langerhans. Mm-hmm. And that's where insulin comes from.
0: Were there- I want
2: to jump in here and, and say that for the listener, it's I think it's important to be familiar with the term metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome refers to a constellation of things that go awry, including hypertension type two diabetes, insulin resistance, heart disease, and high lipids, particularly triglycerides. Part of it should also be non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which afflicts 70 to hundred million Americans. And it's related to the burgeoning epidemic of obesity and type two diabetes. Unfortunately, In our country, over the age of 60 years, 40% of the population has metabolic syndrome. So if a patient has hypertension and they have high triglycerides and may or may not have had a heart attack yet, but they have abnormal liver tests, it's good to think under that rubric, metabolic syndrome, and say to your primary care physician, do I have liver disease? Mm. Do I have insulin resistance? What can I do? Tell me about lifestyle. Tell me about Losing weight, tell me about the appropriate diets, what exercise, etc. should I do? There are a few things that lower the risk of diabetes. And one of them is coffee. So people who drink coffee, and this includes decaf coffee. It's not the caffeine. Coffee has a thousand constituents. And coffee is insulin sensitizing.
0: But, so, I, I, but, but I have to jump in here. Sure. You suggest lots drinking lots of coffee. Uh, I could probably drink two cups a day uh, and, and still get a decent night's sleep. But you're talking about six or seven cups of coffee uh, a day, well, which, the is, more than, show, yeah. so which is more cups, than most people way, ever would.
2: Two cups, by the way, is extremely healthy for you. Drinking coffee lowers the risk of seven common cancers it lowers the risk of mortality in men and women. But for diabetes, the studies show that you have to drink up up around six cups of Mm. regular decaf, and then you get a 40 to 54% reduction in developing type two diabetes. But here's the good news. If you already have type two diabetes and drink two cups, regular or decaffeinated, there's a 30% reduction in
1: cardiovascular mortality. Mm. I'm going to jump in as well to add to that uh, because we know that cardiovascular disease, while we know in in the general population, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. 70% of people with type 2 diabetes are at risk or have cardiovascular disease.
0: But but, uh, can I interject again, but also stroke, chronic kidney disease, foot ulcers, damage to the nerves, damage to the eyes, cognitive impairment, which we can address in a little while. Right, but, Go ahead. But,
1: but let me just add to that. You, you mentioned all of these things, but you can reduce the risk for getting all of these complications with a couple of very, very, very simple steps. Number one is take, take charge and take control of your diabetes. And that, that is achieved by a, a good, healthy eating plan, regular exercise, and medications where appropriate. If you have type one diabetes, you need insulin. If you have type two diabetes, there are a plethora of different medications. And more recently, there are newer medications that not only lower glucose, but their use is associated with weight loss, with obviously less risk of causing low sugars and reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. And I would encourage people who are listening if you have type two diabetes, you should be talking about these newer medications to your doctor if you need medications in addition to lifestyle modification. So the, in addition to that, the, you mentioned the, the kidneys and, uh, and, uh, and eyes, um, these, these complications can all be reduced by good glucose control. And in addition to that, by controlling your blood pressure by controlling your cholesterol, and there are lots of medications now available that can do this.
0: Why does it damage the nerves and damage the eyes and uh, cause cognitive impairment? Because that high, seems to me to be a lot more than just simply a matter of not having enough insulin.
1: So the high—it's—it's it's a consequence of the high glucose. The high glucose level uh, is associated with um, has a deleterious effect on blood vessels. And in the, in the case of the, di, uh, the kidney and the eyes, these are the very small blood, blood vessels that supply nutrients uh, to these vital parts of these organs. These are called micro, microvascular complications. In the case of the heart and stroke, uh, there are larger blood vessels. And the larger blood vessels, there's an increased risk of, of what we call narrowing of these, of these arteries, of atherosclerosis, and hardening of these arteries, which then impacts the blood supply to the, the brain, to the heart, and also to the, to, the, um, to the legs as well. Peripheral vascular disease.
0: Were there treatments for the illness before Frederick Banting and Charles Best discovered insulin uh, in, in the early 20th century? The, the, and didn't, didn't their experiments involve harvesting dog pancreatic tissue?
1: Yeah, they did. But I'll let Sanjeev talk more about the Banting and Best story. The, before insulin was discovered, if you had type 1 diabetes, your only treatment was a what we call a ketogenic diet, where you had no, virtually no carbohydrates in your diet, and the only things you could eat were proteins and fats. And unfortunately, type one diabetes was a lethal disease. People lived probably six months, maybe a little bit longer with type one diabetes if they could stick to these diets. It was an awful, awful disease. And in 1922, January, the first person to receive an injection of insulin was a young man called Leonard Thompson. Um, that's one of the reasons why, by the way, we wanted this book to be released in January because January marked the 100th anniversary of the first person to be treated with insulin. Uh, his life was changed radically with insulin and um, it was impure. It was certainly the insulins available then were certainly nothing like the insulins that we have available now. Uh, that young man, Leonard Thompson, lived for another 13 years. Um, uh, it was remarkable. It was truly life-saving.
0: Dr. two of the doctors involved, uh, Frederick Banting, who we've talked about, but also John McLeod, received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1923. Why not Charles Best, who you've uh, credited?
2: Absolutely. That's a question that uh, plagued Banting. He was actually incensed that Best had not been uh, a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. He shared his winnings with Charles Best, who then went on to become a professor of physiology at Toronto. And in addition to MacLeod and Banting and Best, there was an individual by the name of collap who had refined mm-hmm. the insulin. And Best wanted to give the patent to the University of Toronto. And Banting said, I want to do nothing with it. He said, insulin belongs to the people. So actually, Collip and Best sold the patent on insulin to the University of Toronto for $1.
0: So why is it so expensive in the United States nowadays?
2: That's amazingly good question, good we, question. Have patients, we have patients who cannot afford the insulin they take half the dose they skip doses
1: I'll let Ma- Martin comment on this so just to tell you Colop was the chemist he helped purify the insulin and um he was also the fourth person to get the Nobel Prize they shared the four of them shared the prize ultimately uh, the what's happened with insulin over the years is that there's been a lot of remarkable changes to the way in which insulin is produced. Uh, we now, we went from uh, porcine or insulin that comes from beef and pork and 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 and, and, and pigs to uh, what we call recombinant human insulin. And then there were changes made to the insulin molecule itself to change the way in which it works in the body, uh, works for, for a long time or works for a short time. But your question is absolutely on point. Why is it that insulin is so expensive? And, but
0: only in uh, the United States.
1: Uh, it's much more expensive than the United States. Uh, it's not just insulin. I think many other drugs hmm. are more expensive in the United States than other parts of the world. But I am delighted to see that there is a move afoot uh, to reduce the cost of insulin and to make uh, insulin much more affordable to everybody who needs it.
0: Now, in the late 1930s, scientists discovered that by combining the insulin with a protein called protamine, they could extend the duration of action of the insulin by slowing its absorption into the blood after it was injected. And then that was followed by the development of a zinc protamine preparation that could lower blood glucose levels for over 24 hours. So we've had all of this since the late 30s, early 40s?
1: Yeah, and we've had... You know, the the, the the development of these longer-acting insulins for a short time was, was actually um, in some ways unfortunate because long-acting insulins are not as, as physiologic as we would like them to be um, for, in that they don't really cover uh, what is required after eating a meal. So we really need long-acting and short-acting insulins. And what's happened uh, since the addition of protamine and zinc and these other products to prolong the duration of action of the insulin is that scientists have made what we call analogues of insulin. They've taken the insulin analog and they've substituted one or two amino acids in that analog. They've um, uh, coupled it with other components to either make the insulin very quick acting, uh, which is what you take when you eat a meal or very long acting, which is what you take once a day to sort of keep blood sugars from rising in between meals and overnight. So the, the technology and the scientific advances for in, in terms of the types of insulin that are available has actually been quite remarkable. And we're now on the, pres- the verge of seeing uh, a long acting insulin that can actually be taken once a week.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Hope you're enjoying my conversation with Drs. Martin Abrahamson and Sanjeev Chopra. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, Conquer Your Diabetes Prevention, Control, Remission. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org, or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard at Lodge, and we thank you very much. And now I'm going to return to my guest. Martin Abramson is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, uh, recipient of the Samuel Eichold uh, II Memorial Award for Contribution to Diabetes from the American College of Physicians, and Dr. Sanjeev Chopra As a professor of medicine, served as the faculty dean for continuing education at Harvard Medical School for 12 years. He's the recipient of many awards, including the American Gastroenterology Distinguished Teaching Award and the Ellis Island Medal of of Honor Award. And we are talking about their new book Uh, now. uh, You write that diabetes has no social, economic, or political boundaries; that affects people from all ethnic groups, but isn't there a higher prevalence of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, and higher pe- and Hispanic people?
1: Yes, there uh, there uh, there is a higher prevalence among certain ethnic populations, but
0: do we know why?
1: That, uh, I think it's a combination of genetic predisposition, which we spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. plus also lifestyle changes, change in diet. Changing dietary habits, uh, eating more what we might call westernized foods that are not necessarily that good for you. So uh, I think that's that's the the broad reason why we're seeing this rise in prevalence and a higher prevalence rate among certain ethnic population groups. But I think the point that I was trying to make uh, when we we said that in our book was that it really diabetes really doesn't know any social, economic, or ethnic boundaries. It affects anyone. Uh, type 1 diabetes affects, can affect anyone. Uh, it is certainly, we see a little bit more of it in Northern Europe, interestingly enough, um, but uh, there's certain uh, genetic factors that may play a role there. Type 2 diabetes affects anyone, and uh, they can, and being, and being, of certain ethnic groups or being of certain socioeconomic groups doesn't necessarily define how well you control your diabetes.
0: And you note that some very famous people have been diagnosed with diabetes. Halle Berry was diagnosed with it when she was 22, and Billie Jean King developed type 2 diabetes when she was 63 years old?
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah.
0: So it can hit you at any age as well, and you could be a famous person. Another one was Randy Jackson, but maybe that one is more understandable. He's a music producer, former American Idol judge, but he weighed over 300 pounds at the time.
1: Uh, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is correct. But he's taken charge of his diabetes. Randy Jackson, from what, I'm, from what I've read, um, uh, has, has taken charge of his diabetes, And it's either in control or maybe even in remission. You know, we
2: call the book
1: Conquer Your Diabetes
2: because you can actually master your diabetes. The chronic condition doesn't define you. It's the way you deal with it. There are many, many inspirational stories in the book about people who have just done that. We found an individual by the name of Wilbur Cross who 20 years ago at age 30 scaled Mount Everest. He had type, he has type 1 diabetes. He didn't have continuous glucose monitoring. He had to measure his blood sugar and adjust his insulin multiple times a day. And he then scaled the highest peaks in all the continents, then did a trek to the north and the South Pole, 600 miles. He's now the principal of a school, motivational speaker. And uh, he We were fortunate that he was willing to read our book and endorse it. In the preface, we start with a quote from Sir Edmund Hillary, first person in 1953 from New Zealand, together with the Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay, to climb Mount Everest. And he was asked, Sir Edmund Hillary, what's the greatest achievement of your life, being the first person to climb Mount Everest, the highest mountain? He said, no, all I did was leave a footprint on a mountain. He said, it is not the mountain that we conquer, but ourselves. So we can conquer our fears and our doubts. And if we have good family support and friends, a good team of doctors, dietitians, nutritionists, taking care of our diabetes, we can achieve anything. Martin had a patient who died a couple of years ago. We had a present at our updated internal medicine conference week-long conference, 700 people from 25 countries, and she got a standing ovation. She had type 1 diabetes. She got all the complications of diabetes, handled them, developed iron deficiency anemia, which turned out to be due to celiac disease, which is associated with type 1 diabetes. She lived to her early 90s, became a curling champion, Mm -hmm. and Martin calculated she took 120,000 injections of insulin during her life. These people so inspire
1: all of us. You know, to add to, add, to add to that, not only did she master everything, she embraced every new change that was taking place, whether it was the monitoring of, of glucose, whether it was the types of insulin, whether it was the delivery of insulin with insulin pen devices. She was the, the, the early adopter. Uh, and she had a smile on her face every time she walked into the office. Uh, and she truly inspired not only me, but many other people who came in contact with her. But you, know, you, you mentioned famous people. There, every single person that, that has diabetes is in his own way or her own way, famous and inspirational. And um, one of the stories that we talk about is um, a gentleman who was a pilot who actually developed type 2 diabetes, but we couldn't control him with diet, exercise and medications and he needed insulin. And when he had to go into insulin, that meant that he could no longer fly as a commercial pilot. Mm. Um, and uh, we, he, he persisted in working with me and we actually lobbied through the American Diabetes Association, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. Uh, and a couple of years ago, uh, with the appropriate uh, evidence that he was in good control of his diabetes using continuous glucose monitoring devices and keeping his glucoses within a very closely defined range, he and, and a number of other uh, people with, with diabetes, some with type 1 that needed insulin, some with type 2 that needed insulin, got their pilot's license back again. And I'm delighted to say that he today is flying commer- on a, uh, as a commercial pilot, um, and he's flying all over the world.
0: You mentioned monitoring devices. Uh, the new technology has led to things like tubeless insulin pumps and small glucose sensors that continuously monitor blood sugar levels without even a finger stick. Correct,
1: correct. So... So there are these uh, glucose sensing devices, glucose sensors that that do not require what we call finger stick calibration. They are worn for 10 days, for 14 days. There are now some implantable sensors that can be worn for even up to six months at a time hmm. that then get replaced um, every six months with a small little incision under the skin to replace them. Um, some of these sensors are now connected to pumps. Some of them are tubeless pumps. Some of them are pumps that require little tubes that uh, connect um, the insulin uh, into the to the body, um, and these these sensing glucose sensors connect to the pump and can change the rate of delivery of the insulin uh, based on what the glucose level is. It's what we call a hybrid closed loop system. They do not cover the insulin that is required for a meal. So the individual using the pump still has to give insulin to cover a meal, but it's these pumps, these, these, what we call hybrid closed loop pumps have made a huge difference to people who understand how to use pumps and, um, have been and also less risk of glucose levels going dangerously low.
0: Can't bariatric surgery help many people with type two diabetes go into remission? How does that work? So,
2: bariatric surgery is the one surgical procedure that has been shown to actually increase longevity in that group of individuals who often have significant obesity, type two diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the metabolic syndrome, et cetera. And two years after bariatric surgery, because of the cost savings of the many medications they have either come off or taking at much lower doses, it pays for the bariatric surgery.
0: Well, what does what it involve? What is bariatric surgery? So, bariatric surgery,
2: they're different kinds, but one of them is creating a bypass. So, the food, instead of going into the stomach and then going into the small intestine, It bypasses a significant portion of the small intestine, and that leads to hormonal changes. That leads to a change in the gut microbiome. Patients lose a lot of weight, but there are some patients, two weeks after bariatric surgery, they haven't lost much weight yet. Their diabetes goes into remission. Hmm. Diabetes goes into remission two weeks later. Again, it's based on hormonal changes and
1: change in the gut microbiome. And then with the weight loss, to add to that, yeah. um, their remission is, can be maintained. So the highest rates of remission of diabetes is actually seen in people who have had what we call generally today metabolic surgery. Sanjeev mentioned one of the, meca- one of the types of surgical procedures. Um, there are other procedures, for example, what we call gastric banding, where the stomach is just made smaller. So people uh, eat, uh, eat fewer calories, eat less food, and lose weight. So weight loss um, from bariatric surgery uh, leads to remission of diabetes. But I will also add that weight loss with diet, exercise, and medications can also lead to remission of diabetes.
0: And hasn't promise been found in stem cell therapy to, to cure type 1 diabetes?
2: There is one patient that Doug Melton, a biologist and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he uh, co-heads the Harvard Stem Cell Institute with another colleague of ours, Professor David Scadden, And through a company that he is involved with, they have treated a patient with type one diabetes on insulin, and he is now off insulin for the last six months or so. Uh, now, we need to see this play out in many, many more patients. We need to stem cells to be affordable, to not lead to any kind of rejection or immune response or unanticipated side effects, and only time will tell. But this is a big story. Doug Melton goes to sleep thinking about a cure for type 1, dreams about it, wakes up. And because he's got two children and one of his kids at age nine months was shivering and had a high fever and finally seen at Children's Hospital in Boston and they made the diagnosis of diabetes. Wow! So this has been his lifelong mission.
0: My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at large are doctors Rajiv Chopra and Martin Abramson. And they've written a book called "Conquer Your Diabetes: Prevention, Control, Remission," published by Abramson Chopra Publishing. Well, are there tests to find out whether somebody is pre-diabetic?
1: Yes. Uh, so, pre-diabetes is really defined by certain glucose levels. We know we we define what is a normal glucose level. We define what is a glucose level that that makes you. Uh, be diagnosed with diabetes and in between that there is this uh, this intermediate zone which we call pre-diabetes. Um, there's also a blood test that can be done called a hemoglobin A1c. It's a test that is that originally was designed to assess how well controlled people were with diabetes. We now know that 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 blood test, which can be taken at any time of the day, you don't have to necessarily be fasting. If it's above a certain level, that's diagnostic of diabetes. If it's below a certain level, that's normal. And there's a little intermediate zone as well between the normal and the diabetes range that defines what we call pre-diabetes. And as you said earlier, there um, collectively in, in the United States, there are well over 80 million people with pre-diabetes. So, if you take the number of people with prediabetes in the United States and those with diabetes, we're looking at about a third of our population.
2: Well, with that, not, in mind, not everyone with diabetes has been diagnosed. Yeah. That is Not everyone with prediabetes has been diagnosed. That is, that true. is true.
0: Well, with that in mind, and uh, the uh, as we mentioned earlier, the explosion of numbers uh, projected. Also, the explosion of costs. A few years ago, health expenditure on diabetes was estimated to be $760 billion, but it's estimated to reach $825 billion by 2030. We've gone over a whole bunch of treatments that all seem to be effective. Why does it continue to grow then? Well, diabetes
1: continues to grow in prevalence, I think, because... People are not necessarily following the lifestyle recommendations that have been promulgated and preached to by their physicians or um, necessarily um, are able to adhere to all of these recommendations. So we're seeing a rise in obesity still in this country. More people are becoming obese. Um, and uh, the purpose of our book primarily is to inspire people with or at risk for diabetes to let them realize that small steps can make a big difference to their metabolic scene, metabolic syndrome. They Small steps, like a little bit of weight loss, as we mentioned, can improve glucose control, can reduce the risk for developing diabetes, lowers your blood pressure, improves your cholesterol levels, reduces the amount of fat in the liver. Sanjeev spoke so eloquently about fatty liver disease which is a the number one cause of end stage liver disease in the, in this country today there's there's a lot that people can do but they don't have to lose huge amounts of weight to do it and then of course there's the medications and um, and adherence to medications is another important issue no, so should- you
2: know i think the lifestyle is so important to harp upon I think uh, decades ago, you'd see children playing soccer on the basketball court and shooting hoops and people going for walks. And now young people are sitting in front of the computer. Hmm. People working in the office are sitting for hours in front of the computer. We're doing Zoom meetings for hours at a time. Uh, There's a study that shows that even if you are not overweight, and you do aerobic exercises, but you sit at the computer for seven hours. You have increased cardiovascular mortality. Boy. We now, call sitting is the new smoking.
0: Should, I, that, as- should I assume that uh, we don't have a lot more time here, but I was wondering about my audience. Should I assume that a fair percentage of our listeners have are pre-diabetic or diabetic and may or may not know that that's the case?
1: Well, what I will say this is that in the United States, 25% of people with type 2 diabetes do not know that they have it. Wow. In the world, the undiagnosed percentage is closer to 50%. Now, it's an easy diagnosis to make. Diabetes is just a blood test. You can get a glucose measurement, fasting or following a meal. You can get a hemoglobin A1c test done, which is a standardized, simple, cheap test to do. And people over the age of 45 should be screened for diabetes. And if they have risk factors for diabetes, they should start the screening process at an earlier age. So risk factors would include if you have a family member with a a parent or a sibling with type two diabetes, if you had gestational diabetes, you are at high risk for the development of type two diabetes. Women who have a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome are at high risk. People with high blood pressure are at increased risk. People with certain lipid abnormalities, we spoke about triglycerides earlier, high cholesterol, are at increased risk for the development of diabetes. People who are overweight, are at increased risk for the development of diabetes. They should be screened earlier for diabetes.
0: Now, my mother had diabetes, which she did have weight problems, but none of her children had diabetes or have that we know of. So, it's not e- genetic in most cases.
1: Well, there in often there is a family history in type people with type 2 diabetes, not always, but there often is. And um, I would argue that anyone who has a parent who had type 2 diabetes should at least be screened, even if they're not overweight, should be screened.
0: Okay. Well, the next time I see my doctor for a checkup, which is in a couple of days, I will definitely insist on that. Uh, Okay. And uh, I recommend your book. Thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, I've been speaking with doctors Martin Abramson and Rajiv Chopra about their new book called Conquer Your Diabetes, Prevention, Control, Remission, which is published by Abramson Chopra Publishing. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you for inviting us. Thank you very much.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else. Uh, Podcasts are available. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going right now to... 212 209 2950. That's 212 Or go online to give2wbai.org. That's give, and then the number two, wbai.org. And please do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else, or at least in the kind of depth that we uh, tend to go into. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive uh, a copy of the book we've been discussing, Conquer Your Diabetes Prevention Control Remission, by Drs. Martin Abramson and Sanjeev Chopra. So why not make that call right now? 212. 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during Women's History Month, which is right now, we're offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do uh, with your uh, tax-deductible contribution. Uh, WBI is the only station on the New York Radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Nora Amarni will discuss this year's socially relevant film festival. We'll see you then.